the raising of Lazarus demonstrates the identity and power of Jesus Christ, and it foreshadows the day when he will resurrect the bodies of all those he loves. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Well, folks, in just a moment, we're going to take a look at some very powerful and very encouraging words of Scripture from the Gospel of John. Uh, But before we do that, I want to ask you a question. Uh, Who would you say, who is our greatest enemy? Who is our greatest enemy? Is it China? I know we hear about China in the news all the time. Is it that? Or how about Russia? Is it Russia? No. Well, perhaps our greatest enemy actually isn't a nation at all. Maybe it's something else. Perhaps it's uh, like poverty. Is poverty our greatest enemy? Or is crime our greatest enemy? Something like that. No, I don't think that our, our greatest enemy is another country, nor is it some socioeconomic challenge. And it's not even your neighbor or a coworker or a bully at school. No, I think our greatest enemy is sin and death, sin and death. And death is the consequence of our sin, our moral rebellion against God. And that is the bad news, is that judgment on our moral rebellion. But I told you I had some good news, though, here. And the good news is, is that God has done something about our biggest problem and our greatest enemy. He has defeated. God has defeated our greatest enemy, which is death, through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. So it has been said that Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, that Jesus is the death of death, that through his perfect life of obedience to God's law and his substitutionary death on the cross in which he took the judgment on himself for our sins, through that he ultimately defeated sin and death. And through faith in him, then, we are joined with him in his life and in his victory. And so through him, then, we can overcome death, eternal death, through the life and death of Jesus, the eternal Son of God. He is the hero on our behalf who defeated death for us and then sealed that victory with his triumphant resurrection from the grave. So too, then, through faith in him, we can follow him in his victory when he one day raises our mortal bodies and fashions them anew in the likeness of his own glorious resurrection body. And we can share then in that hope, that special, sacred, powerful promise of the resurrection. And that is good news indeed. So continuing here today in our series on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, unique, there is no one like him, no one like Jesus Christ. He is utterly unique. We are taking an approach which is called a harmony of the Gospels in which we are putting the events and the teachings of Jesus together into one flowing chronological account from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John put together following events as suggested in this book by John MacArthur called One Perfect Life. And for today then, our text is found in the Gospel of John chapter 11, the Gospel of John chapter 11 verses 1 through 54. And I'm calling this book or this message The Other Lazarus, The Other Lazarus. 
Why? Well, stay tuned in just a moment. I'm going to tell you why we're calling this message The Other Lazarus. Uh, But first, what is the big idea here? What is the main thought that I want us to take away from the message here today? And it is this, that the raising of Lazarus demonstrates the identity and power of Jesus Christ, and it foreshadows the day when he will resurrect the bodies of all those he loves. So the raising of Lazarus demonstrates the identity and the power of Jesus Christ, and it foreshadows the day when he will resurrect the bodies of all those he loves. So before we look at our text in John chapter 11, a little context here. A couple of weeks ago, our text was in the Gospel of Luke chapter 16, where there we read of the parable, Jesus' parable, of a righteous poor man named Lazarus and a wicked rich man. And this poor man, Lazarus, was laid at the gates of the home of the rich man. But the rich man, the wicked man, he did nothing to help Lazarus. Well, Lazarus died, and he was carried by the angels into paradise. The rich man also died, and he was buried. But the rich man went to a place of judgment and torment. And it has been pointed out that it is the only parable of Jesus in which a character is named. Lazarus has a specific name here. And because of that, some have suggested that it may be a true story, not a parable, but actually a true story. And that is certainly possible. But here is something else, though, that I find very interesting about that. And I don't know this for a fact, that this is why Jesus gives this poor man in the story the name Lazarus. But I do find it very interesting nevertheless, and it concerns how the story ends. Uh, The rich man says that he has five brothers, and he does not want them to end up where he is, so he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to them and to warn them. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. That is, they have the scriptures. They know. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, Jesus was saying that the Pharisees, the religious rulers and leaders of the day, these self-righteous, wicked, hypocritical leaders, he says that they were like the rich man in the story. And the scriptures were more than enough for them to believe. But they refused to believe. And even if one rose from the dead, they would not believe. Now, ultimately, of course, Jesus was referring to his own resurrection, of course. But I wonder, could he have been foreshadowing a real-life Lazarus who he knew he would soon raise from the dead? And the Pharisees would not believe that Lazarus either. So keep that in mind as we read the story about the other Lazarus in the New Testament, as we found in our text today, the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 11, starting in verse 1, we're told, 
Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So here we see Lazarus becomes sick and dies. Lazarus becomes sick and dies. Now, Jesus dearly loved this family. It was two sisters and a brother named Martha and Mary and Lazarus. As we said, this is not the Lazarus from the parable that we just read a couple of weeks ago in Luke 16. This is the other Lazarus. And Jesus loved these women and this man, and he would stay with them whenever he was in the vicinity of Jerusalem. They lived in a town called Bethany, which was on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, and it was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And this Mary here was the same one that we will see later in John 12, where she poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now Lazarus had become sick. He was so sick that he was going to die. And the sisters assumed, because of the Lord's ability and his love for Lazarus, that he would immediately respond to their word about Lazarus' illness and come, heal his friend. But Jesus delayed he did not go immediately. And we wonder, why would Jesus do that? I thought this was his friend. He loved his friend. See, actually, he wouldn't have even have needed to have left where he was to heal him, could he? He could have simply said the word and Lazarus would have been healed. But he didn't do that. 
Or he could have left and gone to him and he could have healed him before he died, but he didn't do that. He waited and he allowed his friend to die. Now why would he do that? Well, it's because Jesus knew that he was going to do something powerful and amazing that would demonstrate clearly his identity as the Son of God and his mission, why he had come into the world to bring hope and victory over sin and death. And he knew how that was going to powerfully impact his disciples and others who were there and would see that. So his delay was not because he didn't care about his friend or because he was afraid of the religious rulers who had threatened his life if he came back there, but rather he was waiting for the right moment and knowing that he was going to bring glory to himself and hope, not only to people then, but hope to billions of people for centuries to come, including us here today. Jesus says, this sickness is not unto death. It is. It was not a permanent death, but rather Jesus knew he would raise him and be glorified through it. Now Jesus' disciples knew that his going back to Judea near Jerusalem, that this would be dangerous. And they said, Lord, Lord, you don't want to go back there. But Jesus speaks to them in kind of a veiled way to say that, no, actually, it would be too dangerous not to go to Bethany, not to fulfill the will of God in this matter. He says what? If you walk in the light, you are safe. It's walking in the darkness. Now, if you walk in the physical light, you can see it's safe, right? But if you're walking in physical darkness, that's what? When you get hurt, you can run into things, right? Well, he says what? Walking in the light, when we are walking in the light of God's word and God's will, then God's purposes then will be accomplished through us. And no matter what may happen, we are safe in him and in that. But if we're being disobedient to the will, that's the dangerous way to walk. So no matter what may come, he was safe because he was walking in the light of the will of his father. So Jesus says, Lazarus is asleep. And they misunderstood him, and they thought, well, well, if he's asleep, then well, well, he'll wake up, he'll be okay then, right? But he was, no, he was saying he was asleep as what a figure of speech, meaning that Lazarus had died. This sleep is the sleep of death. And it's true that since the coming of Christ, the death of a believer is regularly called a sleep, being asleep. Now, this is not being asleep in the sense of an unconscious soul sleep, as it's called sometimes, but in the sense that the bodies simply appear to be sleeping. We know that what? When the believer dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? But the body sleeps. The, God, the body is going to be awakened one day. The body merely sleeps. Thomas, though, says, well, we'll go, and I will go. I will die with him. You know, Thomas is often called, what do we usually call Thomas? We call him what? Doubting, Doubting Thomas. Poor Thomas, right? 
Can you believe that? We call him that because of an incident after the resurrection when he was not in the upper room with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them. So he say, and, G, and he said what? Well, I'm not believing unless I see him for myself. I want to put my, my hand in, in his side and, and in his wrist. I want to see this for myself. And so he gets this label, Doubting Thomas. Is that really fair of him, though, I wonder? What do you think? If you had been there, would you have wanted to have seen Jesus for yourself, too? Would you want that? Yeah. But I wonder, but here we show his leadership and showed his commitment to Christ, even to death. You know, a church tradition says that he was obedient to Christ and went all the way to India, where he died a martyr's death there some years after the resurrection. But unfortunately, poor Thomas has been saddled with that doubting Thomas label. And I kind of wonder, just a little speculation, I wonder if every time a, a, a believer arrives a new arrival in heaven and they're getting to meet people and they meet Thomas do they go to him and say oh doubting Thomas and Thomas says ah there it is again doubt with the doubting Thomas will this ever end right I hope not so what happens next then we're told starting in verse 17 John 11 verse 17 now when Jesus came he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. So here then we see Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Since Palestine is a very warm environment and decomposition sets in quickly, it was their practice when a person died that they were buried on that same day. So Lazarus has died, and he has been in the grave. He's been buried now for four days. Would you be a little skeptical at this point of Jesus being able to do anything for Lazarus at this point? But even so, they said, we, we know you can do something. Not quite sure what, but they knew he could do something. So Jesus comes, and Martha, the active sister, went to meet Jesus, while Mary, the contemplative sister, waited. And Martha's greeting is a confession of faith. She really believed that Jesus could have healed her brother if he had been there. But she says, but I know God will give you whatever you ask, might imply by themselves that she was confident Lazarus would be restored to life. But her actions of protest at the tomb would seem to indicate otherwise. And so she may have just been simply been saying, Lord, we know you can do something to help us now. But Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, yeah, I, I, I know that. He will rise. We will all rise. Because she wasn't thinking of an immediate resuscitation of Lazarus, but she knew that Daniel chapter 12 prophesies of a resurrection of all at the end of the age. So, yeah, I, I know he will. But, of course, Jesus had something else in mind, and Jesus declared what? I, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is the fifth of Jesus' great I am revelations in the Gospel of John. So the resurrection and the life of the new age is present right now because Jesus is the Lord of life. But he says some words here that are seemingly paradoxical. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet will he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Well, wait a minute. I thought you just said that if you die, I'll yet live. And if I believe, I'll never die. 
Well, of course, we understand what Jesus is saying, don't we? That we will still physically die, but we will never spiritually die. That is, be cut off from the life of God forever and ever. So even though we physically die, we will yet live. And if we believe in him, we will never spiritually die, be cut off from him forever and ever. So Martha then gives a confession of faith in Christ here. She says, oh, I know that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is to come into the world. Here she confesses three. She confesses three things about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer. He is the Son of God, the title of the Messiah. He was the one who was to come into the world, the one who was promised. She believed that Jesus is the Messiah who came to do God's will, but as yet she still didn't understand this coming miracle for her brother. So Martha then tells Mary that Jesus, the teacher, was asking for her. Jesus evidently wanted to have a private conversation with Mary. So Mary comes to Jesus, and when she sees Jesus, she falls at his feet. This is often where we see Mary, at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. She, too, greets Jesus and says, Oh, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Jesus has hope in store for her, knowing what he's about to do. I think it's important, too, that we note the emotion of Jesus here, how Jesus was greatly moved by this. We're told what that shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. I know when kids are, are challenged to memorize Bible verses, oftentimes John eleven thirty five is the first one on the list, right? Just two words, Jesus wept. But I think that shows his identification with us in our grief, in our sorrow, that he grieves with us. He too was deeply moved by the death of his friend. But I think more so, though, he was deeply moved by what sin has done to his beautiful creation, that he was weeping over the creation and, the, and what sin has done in death. So Lazarus had died. He was placed in a tomb. Tombs were often cut into limestone, making it like a, a cave in the side of a wall of rock. And a stone was placed over the entrance. So Jesus commands that the stone door be taken away. And Martha protests. Martha was always the practical one, isn't she? Ever the practical one. She says, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. But Jesus says, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So imagine if you're there. You know what's happened to Lazarus. You know he's been dead for four days. That, that stone is removed. What is this Messiah going to do? And he says, three simple words. Lazarus, come out. And the dead man Lazarus heard his voice and came out of his grave. You know, it's interesting. Some Bible commentators 
like to make this comment that it's important that Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Because if he hadn't said Lazarus, all the dead may have come out at his command, right? <laughs> of course, so they don't point out that Lazarus was actually a very common name. So there might have been Lazaruses all over coming out. But fortunately, we knew which Lazarus this was. And Lazarus came out. See, it was his mighty power that brought Lazarus forth from the grave, restored him to life. Now, it's important for us to understand something here. When Jesus raised Lazarus, he did not resurrect him. He restored him to life in the mortal body. He did not resurrect his body because what there is a huge change or difference between being restored to life in this, this mortal body because this mortal body is still subject to sickness and death. Lazarus died again physically. But resurrection isn't a restoration to a mortal body. It is a whole new quality of life. It is a glorified, resurrected body that can never be sick, that can never die. But this was a picture, though, of his power to raise the dead. So it's a marvelous picture of God's Son bringing life to his people, those whom he loves. And the scriptures assure us that he will raise the mortal remains of all of his people of all of the ages. But it won't be a rest. Aren't you glad? It's not going to be, you're not going to be restored to life in a mortal body like this. It's going to be a restoration to a new body, a glorified body, a resurrected body like his. He also now, he speaks now to all. He calls spiritually dead people everywhere to life in him, to spiritual life. He brings them alive by the power of his command. Now, of course, the Pharisees, the religious leaders seeing this, they saw this, and of course, they immediately fell on their faces and worshiped and believed, right? Now, remember that story, just that parable Jesus told not too long before this about a man named Lazarus, and he said, well, even if Lazarus went back and spoke to them, they still wouldn't believe. Well, now here is a man actually has been restored to life named Lazarus. And did they believe? No. Look what we're told. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, 
But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. So these religious leaders, they didn't believe because of what Jesus did. In fact, it made them want to kill him and plot to kill him all the more. Why? Because they saw him as a threat to them and to their nation and to their place. This Jesus is going to get the people all stirred up and then the Romans are going to come in and they're going to destroy our place, our nation. Destroy the temple, destroy, destroy our place. By the way, we're not told in this chapter, but in chapter 12 it goes on. Not only then did they plot to kill Jesus, who else did they plot to kill? Lazarus. Why? Because Lazarus was a walking testimony to the power of Jesus. I kind of wonder, what would it have been like to have been Lazarus? Would you have liked to have been Lazarus? You were sick and you died. Now you are in paradise you are with your loved ones in God who have gone before you. And then all of a sudden, what, I have to go back? Right? And he goes back, and now here he is again in the mortal body. And not only that, now the religious rulers are seeking to kill you. But you know what? I'm sure he's okay now with what's happened, with how that all turned out. Right? So Jesus' revelation of himself always produces two responses, one of two responses. For some, it's faith, belief. For others, what? They simply reject or turn away. Do not believe. In fact, they became more hardened in their sin. Interestingly, the high priest Caiaphas says something here. He didn't realize what he was saying it at the time, where he said, what, it's better for one man to die than for the nation to die. And he was thinking, we need to get rid of Jesus so he doesn't cause problems for our nation. And he's saying, no, in fact, yes, this one man would die for the nation. But he didn't realize what he was saying, though. And it was true that some years later, in fact, in A.D. 70, would have been about 40 years later after this, that there was a stirring up, a rebellion among the people that the Romans put down, and they did destroy the temple, and they did destroy the nation, and the Jewish people were scattered throughout the world then. So they were right to have a concern about that, weren't they? But Jesus came, though, and his death abolished the old system, the sacrificial system, with his once-for-all-time sacrifice. And he fulfilled the meaning of the Old Testament law and sacrificial system. But the leaders wanted to kill him because he was a threat to them. So Jesus withdrew because he knew he was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to die on that cross, but not yet. It would be in his time. 
Here's something I want us to reflect on here is that Jesus has justified us, he is sanctifying us, and he will glorify us. What does all that mean? It means, well, he has justified us. That is, through his life, death, and resurrection, and our faith in him, the scriptures declared that we are justified. That is, we are made right with God. We are restored to a right relationship with God that our sins are forgiven, that we are given the gift of eternal life. We are declared perfect and holy in his sight through Jesus. He has justified us when we put our faith in him. But the scriptures tell us, though, that he is sanctifying. To sanctify means to be increasingly set apart. It means to grow into the character and the likeness of Christ to become more like him in thought, attitude, word, and deed. He is sanctifying us. But the scriptures tell us, though, that he will glorify us. What is that to be glorified? That is the culmination or the end of our redemption of what Jesus is accomplishing and is doing for us, in which what we will be completely separated, set apart from sin. We'll never even be tempted by it again. And he's going to raise or glorify these mortal bodies, resurrect them to be resurrected bodies like his own. That glorification is the culmination of our salvation, and it's the resurrection of the body. I want to share just a few thoughts with us here this morning. Um, As many of you may know, I really like a book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven in which he does a wonderful job of presenting scriptural teaching on heaven and what awaits the believer in Jesus Christ. He does present scriptural teaching, but then he also does a little, what I would call, sanctified speculation at times, too, on what that might be like. And here's just a few thoughts here about what will our resurrected bodies be like And he says, well, our resurrection bodies will be free of the curse of sin, redeemed and restored to their original beauty and purpose that goes back to Eden. The only bodies we've ever known are weak and diseased remnants of the original bodies God made for humans. But the bodies we'll have on the new earth in our resurrection will be even more glorious than those of Adam and Eve. He says, the most beautiful person you've ever seen is under the curse a shadow of the beauty that once characterized humanity. If we saw Adam and Eve as they were in Eden, they would likely take our breath away. If they would have seen us as we are now, they likely would have been filled with shock and pity. Some of us especially, I know. But he says, though, of this we can be certain. No matter what we look like, our bodies will please the Lord, ourselves, and others. We won't gaze into the mirror wishing for a different nose or different cheeks or ears or teeth. The sinless beauty of the inner person will overflow into the beauty of the outer person. And we will feel neither insecurity nor arrogance. We won't attempt to hide or impress. We won't have to try to look beautiful. We will be beautiful. And what about our our senses? Our eyes, our nose, our ears. It says, heaven's delights will stretch our glorified senses to their limits. How will things look? And how far away will we be able to see? Will our eyes be able to function alternately as telescopes and microscopes? 
Will our eyes serve as sound-gathering discs? Will our sense of smell be far more acute, able to identify a favorite flower miles away? Will our eyes be able to see new colors? What about our taste buds? The best food here on earth is tainted by the curse. Our taste buds are still defective. Think of the best meal you've ever eaten, the best dessert you've ever tasted. Good as they were, they were just a hint of what's to come. A good enough hint to make us long for heaven. And will our bodies have new capabilities that they don't have now? We see some of that with the body of Jesus, and perhaps that was just his ability as the God-man, but perhaps our bodies will be like that and able to do things they're not able to do right now in space and time. For example, will, will we be able to dive into the ocean the way a whale can? Will we be able to fly the way an eagle can? Maybe we'll run like a cheetah or climb a mountain like a goat. All speculation, but he says here's the thing. Still, we shouldn't assume too much about all of these things. Perhaps, you know, in fact, we will have these minds that are able then to create and perfect new transportation modes and perhaps some of what we've long dreamed of in science fiction awaits us in the new universe. What will all of that look like? I don't know, but it's fun to think about, isn't it? So what? What should we do with this? I want to remind us of where we started here, which is that the raising of Lazarus demonstrates the identity and the power of Jesus Christ, and it foreshadows the day when he will resurrect the bodies of all those he loves. Who are the ones he loves? Those who believe in him, whose trust is in him. So I want to end on a simple question. Do you share in the hope of the resurrection? Do you share in the hope of the resurrection? You can have that hope, that sure and certain promise of God. How? Through being right with God, through being justified, by putting our trust, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect life, his perfect obedience, his substitutionary death on the cross for us, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We will rise with him. Forgiven in him, given new life in him, and the promise of rising with him. This is the hope, the sure and certain promise of God for all those he loves. Who does he love? Those who believe in him, those who trust in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful news of hope that we have, that Jesus has indeed conquered death for us. He is the death of death, and he is the hope of the resurrection. Lord, I pray for his here today, that all of us, that we would take away comfort and encouragement from this powerful words of your word here in John 11. Jesus is indeed the resurrection and the life, and all who believe in him, even though they die, yet shall they live, and those who believe in him will never die. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.